Well, let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. I had Greg read the whole section, much of it we've been through already. Just to catch us up again, you remember that Peter and John had performed a miracle and the healing of a man who was born crippled, that they had preached the gospel, that many had come to Christ, that they were pulled then before the religious authorities of Israel. And they had reasoned with the Sanhedrin from the word of God about the Messiah, and they had frankly stymied and silenced the Sanhedrin, who then threatened and released them. And so we pick up our text in verse 23, and as we come to this verse, we find again the church at prayer. This is the third time in four chapters that we find the church praying. And I want to give you just three simple observations as a means of outlining this text as we make our way through it and give you, I hope, some helpful principles regarding prayer, particularly prayer in troubled circumstances. What did Peter and John do in response to the persecution that they endured at the hands of the authorities? Well, the first thing they did is they went to the church. That's our first point. Peter and John went to the church. Look at verse 23. So when they were released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Once the Sanhedrin had cut these men loose, and perhaps the lame man as well, they went to the church, they went to their brothers and sisters in Christ and gave a report. I don't think that's an insignificant point. I think it challenges again our notion of sort of a loose association with the church. No, these men, when coming out of that situation, had one place and one place only they wanted to be, and that is with the people of God. They had spent a night in jail. They had been put on trial. They had been through an inquisition. They were threatened by these authorities. And it's intriguing to me that they did not begin by questioning uh, and, and making a stink about their First Amendment rights. They did not decide to abandon the mission. They did not move to Texas or Tennessee. Where do you go after something like this happens to you? They knew just where to go. They went to their own. Companions is added to the text. They went to their own. The idea is their own people. They went to those who were like them. They went to one's clan. They went to their church family. You remember the words of, of John 1.1, Jesus came to his own. That is a reference to his Jewish brethren. He, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And so what we begin to see unfolding here in the early chapters of Acts is this emerging picture and this identity of a group of people who are the church, the people of God, the family of God. These were Peter and John's people. 
These were their family. This was the fellowship of the saints. Church was not a place they attended. It was a group of people to whom they were committed and a group of people who were committed to them. And they go to the church and they give a report, the text says, of all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, undoubtedly, word had spread. Peter and John, you remember, spent an evening in the clink, and, 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 and word had begun to spread of, of what had happened as Peter and John had borne testimony. There were thousands of people who were aware of what was transpiring in Jerusalem. They knew about the miraculous healing. They knew about the gospel success. They knew about this interrogation. They knew about the imprisonment. And you can only imagine the concern that was going on in the, in the hearts of the church for the apostles, they knew what this council had done to Jesus not two months earlier. There, there was no, no court uh, access, if you will. There was no ability, no daily newspaper that was going to report everything that transpired in that courtroom. And so the church was left in the dark, if you will, and they were waiting for news. And what they find out when Peter and John arrive is that persecution has finally come to the church. And it's come early in the church's development. There's going to be opposition. They'd seen thousands come on the day of Pentecost. Daily the Lord was adding to their number. They saw 5,000 come as Peter and John were preaching. And now all of a sudden they hit the first speed bump. And what did they do? There's no evidence in our text that they got their concealed carry permits or that they strengthened the borders around the church to make sure that security was, was strong enough. They, they didn't make any appeal here to Caesar that somehow their religious liberties had been violated. A case can be made for that sort of thing, of course, particularly in this country as we have laws protecting our religious liberties and our freedom of speech. And later in Acts, we're going to see Paul do exactly that. On two occasions, he will appeal to Rome and to his Roman citizenship. And we can talk about all of that. We have talked about some of that in, in just this past year. But what we must see in this text is what I think far too many American Christians anyway realize, and that is, number one, it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. And they knew it. I think that's important as we try to understand the, 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 the thrust of what's going on here. Peter and John are not in a panic. They're not terrified. In fact, I think they probably come encouraged. We'll see that in chapter 5. They are not coming apart at the seams over all of this. I think they expected it. And I think it's also important to realize that the church didn't think in terms of self-protection. The church was not trying to preserve the American dream. The church didn't look to law and they didn't look to civil government where they looked was to the Lord, and they looked to the Lord in prayer. What did the saints do when the gale force winds of persecution began blowing in their direction? Well, first, they went to church. Secondly, they gathered together. They went to prayer. That's our second point. They not only got together, but they went to prayer. 
verse 24. And when they had heard this, that is, when the church had heard the report of Peter and John, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. And we've seen this already, haven't we, that the early church was devoted to prayer. This is their reflex to everything in life, is to look to the Lord and to say, let's pray. You remember, if you want to turn with me back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, we read that these all, that is the church, the 120 who were gathered, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They are unified and they are praying. We see it in Acts 2.42, the church gathered. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. You look down at at, uh, verse 46, and you see that they were daily devoting themselves, note this, with one accord in the temple. In other words, there is this unity that exists among the church, and it is often found expressing that unity through corporate prayer. And that is perfectly consistent with the rest of the New Testament. God's people are forever gathering. They are unified in heart and mind. They are listening and they are praying and they are giving themselves both to worship, full prayer, and to supplication and asking God for their needs. Now the text said they lifted their voices. In the original, voices is singular. They lifted their voice. And it's likely that there is one person who is actually verbalizing the prayer and that others are attentive to what's being prayed. They're engaged in what's being prayed. They're mentally tracking with what's being prayed. And they're affirming what is being prayed so that the whole church then is praying together as one man. And this is precisely how we ought to pray. There may be one person praying, beloved, but you should be praying along with them. Your mind should be tracking with them. You're listening and echoing their prayers to God. You're attentive and you're affirming what is being prayed. What's clear from this text and throughout the whole of the Bible, really from Genesis to Revelation, is that God's people are praying people. God's people are devoted to prayer. There is an upswell in the heart of a believer that wants to honor God and exalt God and worship God and join voices together in the praise and worship and seeking God dependently for everything that that we need. Well, what did they pray? How do you pray? If you want to think about it that way, in the face of threatening circumstances, well, we all face threatening circumstances. They may not be the same circumstances as they were facing here, but that day may be coming. And there's a great deal we can learn by listening to the early church pray. First, we see that their prayer was an expression of worship. Did you notice that? Look at the text again. They lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Master. 
It is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It is so easy for us to hear that kind of thing and think that's just religiosity spilling out of the mouth. The prayer is going to come when they start really pressing God for what they want. But that is not the heart of these people. And this is very helpful, beloved, for our our own prayer lives, for your prayer life, for mine, for ours together. They begin where we must begin, with the acknowledgement and acclamation of our sovereign God. They don't burst into the throne room and just dump out a bucket of, of requests. Did you notice that? These people have needs, and they're going to ask him, but they begin carefully thinking about God, and it's when you start there that everything gets aligned in your prayer. We saw this last week, didn't we, in Psalm 100, where the psalmist writes, Make a loud shout to Yahweh, all the earth. Serve Yahweh with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Why? Well, know that Yahweh is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. You see, the psalmist is right in line with where the New Testament church is in thinking about God and thinking about his splendor and his majesty and the fact that he is the creator He alone is God. He alone has created everything. We are the creature, and we are totally dependent upon him, which is why they start here. God is the omnipotent creator. Everything else on this planet and everything else in this universe, material, immaterial, spiritual, physical, everything else is less than he is. Everything else has been created by him and through him and for him. Everything else is less. Everything else is dependent. Yahweh alone is God and there is no other. And that is where you need to start in the moment of your trouble. Most of us begin to try and untangle the knot and we start thinking strategically about how we're going to get out of this thing. That is not where these people started. They started right here, looking to the Lord God himself. And they address him with an assertion of his absolute authority over everything. In fact, the word master is despotes. We get the word despot from it. But this has none of the negative connotations that that word does in English, and it emphasizes really just the absolute authority of God. Whatever challenge you face, whatever the trial, no matter the intensity of the hostility, we have a God who rules over everything, and he rules over everything utterly unrivaled. He is bigger than your circumstances. He is greater than your trial. And as we've said many times, his fingerprints are all over it, whatever it is. It's no wonder that these early saints 
refer to themselves in verse 29 as slaves. You see, they've got that whole alignment right. God is not the great you know, dispensary in the sky to whom I appeal. I just push you know, F8 and the right candy bar drops out. That's not the point. Who do you think you are? God is holy, and he is the creator. He is mighty. He is master, and we are the creature. We are weak. We are in need. We come to submit and to bow and to wonder at him and to, to, to worship him. Commentator Daryl Bach says, there is a corporate humility expressed in turning to the master. And he's exactly right. Of all the expressions of humility that exist, perhaps prayer is the fundamental expression of one's humility and dependence upon the Lord. The humble pray. And this is true of individuals and this is true of churches. And so first, their prayer is an expression of worship toward God. Secondly, note that that their prayer was saturated in Scripture. They pray according to the will and the word of God. God is the subject of this, and it says, you who, verse 25, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your father David, our father David, your servant, said. This, before we move on, is we should pull over and just acknowledge this is a great expression of divine inspiration, isn't it? What David said came directly from the Spirit of God who was speaking, of course, as God. And the words of the authors of uh, of Scripture are, in fact, God-breathed words. David's word is God's word. And so the church is thinking biblically as they pray, and they incorporate the word of God right into their prayer. They quote from Psalm 2. Verses 1 and 2, let's turn over there just momentarily because we need to track with their thinking. We're going to read through this with just a little commentary. This psalm outlines very easily, and I'm just going to give you four R's. It begins with the rebellion of mankind in verses 1 to 3. Look at it with me. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand together and rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed his Messiah, his Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We're not going to be bound to this God. We do not need to obey him or heed him at all. And the psalmist begins with a question. Why are the nations raging? Why do the peoples do this? Why do they resist God? That's a rhetorical question. That should be folly. It's a vain thing to rise up against God and to challenge him. It's empty, it's foolish, it's impossible. And then the kings get involved, from the least of humanity even to the greatest, and they take counsel together. And they take their stand, united as a coalition against Yahweh and his anointed king. And, and, and beloved, they've picked a fight they cannot finish. 
They have chosen the wrong one to oppose. They've gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And then verse 4, we see the response of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God is not threatened. He is not troubled. He is not shaken when men oppose him. Mankind in his pride and his pomp is nothing other than a peacock. There's a lot of feathers and a lot of, a lot of supposed noise and squawking going on, but the peacock is weak and the peacock is nothing. It is utterly harmless. And the insolent rebellion of man is utterly laughable to God. God scoffs at scoffers. He doesn't even stand up. He is unthreatened, and he finds man's defiance amusing. James Boyce on this is too good. He says, quote, what is God's reaction to the haughty words of these pygmy human rulers? God does not tremble. He does not hide behind a vast celestial rampart, counting the enemy and calculating whether or not he has sufficient force to counter this new challenge to his kingdom. He does not even rise from where he is sitting. He simply laughs at these great imbeciles, end quote. The Lord is full of anger and he terrifies them in his fury. It is, God is not to be trifled with. And he speaks terrifying words and defiant words and he tells these kings that look if you're hoping to hold on to your kingship you can forget it whatever your aspirations are to rule over everything including me you can just stuff it because I've already installed my king I have anointed my son who is the king of kings Lord of lords, he reigns even now at the right hand of the Father. And these words anticipate Christ's return and his eventual sovereign rule upon his throne during the thousand-year reign from Jerusalem, the millennium. And then we get this very interesting, the, the next section, verses 7 and 9, is the rule of Christ. And there's this change of voice here. Look at it. We get a change of speaker I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. Who's, who's the speaker? He said to me, you are my son. Oh, this is Christ. This is the Messiah. I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. And all of that is rich, rich biblical language. The Messiah is letting us in on this Trinitarian discussion and he's saying, look, I'm going to rule on my throne, on the throne of David. And the world seeks foolishly to try and dethrone him. But as I said, it's a done deal. And Jesus says, Isaiah 45, 9, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. 
You understand what he's saying. He's saying, look, rebels, human rebels are, are nothing but fragile pottery before me. I, I can shatter anything and everything about the power of man. I can smash them like they're nothing. And there is a kingdom, beloved, that is now invisible but will not pass away and it will be visible in time when the Lord will return and will establish his throne and things will change mightily then when he rules with a rod of iron and people of every tribe, tongue, and nation obey him. And then this psalm turns and speaks about the refuge for man in verses 10 through 12. So now, O kings, Show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. That is the idea of kissing a noble. You've seen the ring extended. That's, that's kind of the idea here. Kiss the sun lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. But pay attention to these words. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Can I ask you this morning before we go back to Acts 4, have you taken refuge in the Son? Have you taken refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the King of kings, and his dominion is from everlasting to everlasting. And whether you're a a royal here this morning or whether you are just an average run-of-the-mill human being who sits on the throne of your own life, do you understand that you were created by this God to worship him and to serve him and to honor him and to obey him and that you've disobeyed him and you have lived your life according to your own dictates? It is this God who rules. There is no other and there is one way to him, one way to heaven, and that is to come through the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood and lived a righteous life that warrants heaven. And all of that can be yours through repentance and faith. He has sent his son to rescue you from hell. Have you come and bowed the knee and sought refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ? There are only two options. Repent or perish. Serve the king or serve the devil. You will either perish in your pride or you will repent and turn from your pride. You will either take refuge in him or someday you will be seeking refuge from him, but there will be no place to hide. And I encourage you this morning to lay down your arms and to stop raging against this king. Come to him and seek refuge that he offers. Let's go back to Psalm or to Acts 4. In their prayer, they only quote the first two verses of that psalm, but the whole of it, I believe, is is marinating in their minds. It is percolating, if you will, in their thinking about who God is and, and the fact that the world is opposed to God. You see, what, they're, what the argument they're making is, Lord, is, as we pray, we understand the, that this is exactly what we ought to be expecting, to have Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the peoples opposed to you. We know this is the way it runs because we know our Bibles. 
And they begin to gain perspective on their circumstances. They knew that it would be this way. Christ suffered unjustly, therefore they would suffer unjustly. Christ was persecuted, therefore they would be persecuted. You remember what Jesus said in John 15, 20, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will also persecute you. And here the church is saying, okay, we see it. They begin to recount specifically all that transpired. Look at verse 27. They just rehearse these facts. It's not as though God doesn't know these things. But they're tying Psalm 2 to their experience here in chapter 4 and verse 27. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You see, that's the point. That's what they're really after. That's what's resonating in their head is the reality of the sovereignty of God. It is God's hand that rules the world. It is God's purposes that will be accomplished. And this brings us really to a third principle for prayer, and that is that their prayer was confidently founded in the sovereignty of God. They understood that God rules. They understood that it's God's plans that will be realized, that he is and his purposes are like an unstoppable train barreling down the tracks, and and men can put all the coins on the track they want. It just gets flattened. It does not derail the train. God will accomplish his ends. He foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. It's amazing to me that every time Peter has opened his mouth to preach in these four chapters, every time he comes back to this reality, God's redemptive plans are moving forward and there is nothing you or anyone else on this planet can do to thwart those plans. The devil himself can try as he wishes, but the devil is God's devil. You see, you can take the best and the brightest, you can assemble the authoritative and the mighty. You can bring all the people, every last one of them from the four corners of the earth. You can get every rebel, gather them together en masse before the Lord. And ultimately, as they employ their hands to pursue their purposes, in the end what they find is that their hands and their purposes have only served the greater purpose of God. How frustrating that must be. Here's the point. Omnipotent God rules over all, and the sovereign God executes his good purposes. And they are praying from a sincere faith, a robust faith, a saving faith. They trust these things. Is this the way you interpret your life? Is this the way when trouble comes your way? that you reflexively go to the people of God and seek them for counsel and for encouragement and for hope? 
Do you talk to them about what you're going through? And, and then do you reflexively go to prayer? And in that prayer, are you, are you centered and focused in on the reality of the God to whom you pray, who he is? This is, this is why we've often said sometimes we, we live, we act like practical atheists. Like somehow God has nothing to do with this and I just hope he'll help me figure out how to get out of this thing. God's much bigger than that, my friends, and his purposes are much greater than that. And, and these folks looked at the hot water they were in and they began right away to interpret them in light of what the scriptures had said. They went to their Bibles and they began to think, what does the Bible have to say about the situation in which I find myself? And they took those things to the Lord in prayer. Again, they didn't strategize. They didn't flee. They didn't withdraw and begin to play it safe. They didn't go covert Christian. Not these saints. They turn to the Lord. They worship him for who he is, and then they turn to ask and to seek his help. Look at verse 29. And now, you see, that's a turning point. And their asking is going to come on the heels of reflecting on all they know to be true of God and his purposes. And they begin to ask him three things. Lord, here's the first thing. Take note of their threats. What are they saying? They're saying simply this. Lord, you're aware of the threats that they are breathing down our neck. You're aware of the seriousness of this situation you take note of it. You're the one who's sovereign. You're the one who can, who can dole out exactly what you plead, please. You can restrain them as you please. Take note of their threats. Lord, their threats are heavy on our hearts, and so we, we just cast them in your lap. And this is just so beautiful. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Here's the second thing they ask, and this, this is counterintuitive for us. This is shocking to us. Take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders happen through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They want to see God's hand. That's the third thing. Heal, that is to save. They want to see the Lord continue to perform these confirming miracles so that the preaching of the word of God might be confirmed here in this early period of the church and that people might know Christ. You see, their, you see their hearts? They say, Lord, take note of their threats, and then they plead with God for courage and for power to continue to be able to, to preach in the face of their fears, to declare the truth boldly, though their knees might be trembling a bit. Give us courage, they say. Help us to speak. Open our mouths 
And then they ask the Lord, Lord, through that preaching, continue to save men. We want to see you continue to do your mighty works that are undeniable. The most mighty, of course, being that you would, you would take out a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Lord, when you convert men, what kind of glory is given to your great name in the name of your holy servant, Jesus? That's transparent enough. They say, in essence, oh, Lord, you, you know how weak we are. You know how tempted we are to draw back. And though I may try to cover it up, you know that in the recesses of my heart, I am tempted to keep my mouth zipped and to prioritize my own reputation over your reputation. You know, Lord, how much I don't even want to face the issue of how little I talk about you and how, how, how much I, I, can, I can just draw back when I feel like I'm going to suffer something for your sake. Lord, you know how hesitant we are to want to give up the fun and the freedom of this life. Lord, you know how risky it is for us to think about going to jail or even being killed and separated from my family. Lord, you know what it is to face the threat of death. Help me not to pale in the face of those fears. Lord, take note of their threats, but I will leave that in your hands. You just help me to be faithful to speak your word with boldness. For I am not ashamed, says Paul, of the gospel of God. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. These guys just wanted to be faithful. And it's amazing to me, really, what they don't pray for. They don't ask that God would destroy their opponents. Here's John, right, who once called down thunder from heaven <laughs> to consume the ungodly. But that's not his prayer on this side of Christ. They don't even ask that God would shield them from all persecution or even execution. They simply entrust themselves to the Lord and they put it in his sovereign hands. They don't ask the Lord for a different assignment. They don't ask the Lord for a job in Idaho where everybody believes the same thing I do, so <laughs> there's no need to talk. Or at least there's certainly no need to face any sort of persecution. Let's just face the harsh reality, shall we? We'll face it together that you and I, by God's providential design, reside in the state of California. We do. What a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. I want you to notice, fourthly, just another principle of prayer here, that their, their prayer is grounded in the will of God, isn't it? It's determined to, 
to fulfill the Great Commission. They want to do what God has called them to do. I want to bear witness to the truth, and that will bring trouble, but Lord, help me to be faithful in the face of trouble. Jay Adams wrote a, a great little pamphlet entitled, How to Handle Trouble. I thought, gee, eight pages, who can't read that? And, and he says in there, listen, there are four things you must do when, when trouble comes knocking. He says, number one, you need to understand God is in your trouble. Number two, God is up to something. Number three, God is up to something good. And number four is you must get involved. And the question, of course, is, well, how do I get involved? And that's not always crystal clear. But there is one way that you can always get involved when trouble comes knocking. And that is you respond to trouble in prayer. This is how you pray in trouble. You think about God. You think about all that he is and all that he's done. The fact that he's faithful and true and mighty and good and you worship him. And then you think about all that God has said in his word regarding your trouble. You saturate your prayers in the text of scripture and you pray according to God's word. And then you remember your God and you recall that he is in your trouble, that he's up to something good, and you cast your cares on him knowing that he's sovereign over everything in life, and then you pray as these did with a heart that is absolutely bent on obedience to the will of God. And that's exactly what they did. They went to church, they went to prayer, and then in the power of the Holy Spirit, they went right back to proclaiming Christ. You see, God answers prayers like these because this is a God-centered prayer. This isn't about these people, you know, getting their next widget or whatever. This is not the prayers spoken of in the book of James that are adulterous prayers that are, are not answered. You, you have not because you ask not, and when you ask what? You ask according to your pleasures so that you might spend it on you. That's not what these people are doing. They're consumed with God and God's purposes, and so their prayers sound like it. You can hear it in what they're asking. And God answers this prayer, and you can look at the results right there in verse 31. When they had prayed earnestly, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. There was an earthquake of sorts, uh, <laughs> earthquakes are often associated with the presence and the power of God and so the spirit comes in power and he shakes the place up. Can you imagine that if this place just started? Ah, unbelievable. More people would come to prayer on Fridays if that happened, I'm telling you. And then the text tells us not only was, was the, the place shaken, but they were all filled. This is the second impact of this prayer. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You remember that being filled with the Spirit is not the idea of, of 
receiving the Spirit again, but it is being filled to overflowing with the Spirit of God. It is to be living your life under submission to the truth of the Spirit of truth. It is to be living with your knee bowed and attentive to the will of God. Here they are, filled with the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, what's the end result of all of that? They began to speak the word of God with confidence. We've seen this time and again, haven't we, that when people are filled with the Spirit of God, it is almost almost always coupled with the declaration of the glories of Christ. A life filled with the Spirit of Christ is a mouth filled with the glory of Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they speak with confidence. And let me just ask you one final question, beloved. Do you lack confidence? Do you lack boldness? Are your lips zipped? Is your heart still shrouded in fear to talk about Christ? Well, let me ask you this question. Have you prayed? Have you asked the Spirit of God to fill you? And have you pleaded with God, the sovereign God, the mighty God, the God who is able to take even your stammering tongue and your frail personality and to fill your mouth with a confident declaration of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of his blood for salvation, the power of his resurrection, and the promise of his return. You too can speak like this. We're called, beloved, to speak like this. This is why Paul says, pray for me as I proclaim the word of God so that I might preach it in a way that's, that's worthy and appropriate to the word of God. His word is what? Truth. So why do we shrink back? Ask God for boldness. Ask him for courage to overcome your fear. Again, we have not because we ask not. And the Lord has called us to testify, to follow right in the footsteps of our Savior and of these faithful saints in the first century who proclaim Christ in spite of their fear. I would remind you that that courage is not having no fear Courage is doing what's right in the face of your fears. And that is precisely what these people did. Beloved, the Lord has called us to testify. May we be faithful to declare the glorious gospel of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this King who has called us as his people to remember him by coming to his table and to enjoy the benefits of his great salvation. So with that, can we have some men come forward to pass the elements? If you're a non-Christian here this morning, I would plead with you to turn to Christ. And if you have not come to Christ and are unwilling to come to Christ, I would caution you against taking of these elements. Just pass them. Lest you eat and drink judgment to yourself. This is for Christians only. Nobody will judge you. Let these things pass by. And believers, take time to examine yourselves to remember Christ, our sufficient Savior.